You're listening to Brainwaves on WRBB 104.9 FM. My name is Dana Decay. Listener discretion is advised. It's about to get excitingly explicit. According to Science Insider, the average American curses 80 to 90 times per day. Word frequency lists compiled by multiple psychologists show that the most spoken words in public settings besides the pronouns I, she, he, and we are fuck, shit, damn, and hell. Why do we swear so often? For this episode of Brainwaves, I was lucky enough to chat with Northeastern psychology professor Jay Satpute, who helped me break down the importance of vulgar language and how it shapes emotional and cognitive experience. On top of being a professor, Satpute is the director of Northeastern's ABS lab, the Affective and Brain Sciences Lab. His area of study focuses on large-scale computational architectures of the brain and the neural basis of affect, including pleasure, pain, and emotion. But before we get into the exact science with Professor Satpute, I'd like to discuss some of the overall physical and mental health benefits of cursing. Swearing, something historically taboo, has been around since the creation of our language. It's more ingrained into our lexicon and culture than we could have ever imagined. I was first exposed to the beautiful world of cursing by Nicolas Cage on the Netflix original History of Swear Words. The show hosted an array of comedian, lexicographers, and psychologists to explain what swearing means to them and the world around us. Overall, the show opened my eyes to the strange power that swearing holds. It was fascinating to learn how we will always live with swear words, even though they constantly take a new shape. It's no wonder they're so popular. Swear words are incredibly versatile and represent an archive of our society's vocabulary. You might have been punished in the past due to swearing, but profanity is ingrained in the human experience. Now, before I present my case for the foul-mouthed, I'd like to share a disclaimer. This episode is not intended to promote the increase of swearing as a tool to help your mental or physical health. I'm about to present the benefits of cursing from well-researched studies— that do not include derogatory swear words. More importantly, I'm in no way justifying the use of any swear words that discriminate particular identities or essentialize anyone in a single word. This type of swearing should never be tolerated. I'm glad I could clarify that. Now, let's get into it. Ever wonder why your first response to stubbing your toe is to swear? After immediate instances of pain, we typically cuss right away instead of saying something along the lines of, ouch, that really hurts. This is because, and it's scientifically proven, swearing can help reduce physical pain. Psychologist Richard Stevens explains it this way. Cussing produces kind of a stress response that initiates the body's ancient defensive reflex. It causes a flush of adrenaline, increases heart rate and breathing, and even preps muscles for fight or flight. This theory has been tested multiple times, most notably with buckets of ice water. The study starts by splitting participants into two groups— One group of participants is allowed to curse with their hands submerged in the water. The other group is not. Studies show that the participants allowed to curse last 50% longer with their hands in the water than the participants with clean mouths. But swearing can actually reduce emotional pain as well. In my research, I stumbled upon the phrase lalochesia. The definition of lalochesia is the emotional relief gained by using indecent or vulgar language. When you swear, your brain is calculating which swear word it thinks would feel best to use in that particular situation. Therefore, we use certain expletives for telling someone off versus easing physical pain. 
In moments of immense stress, maybe after avoiding a car crash on the road, your brain chooses the cuss word that can lower the most anxiety at that moment. Research proves that curse words can excite our bodies in a physiological sense, connecting to the lower brain circuitry responsible for handling emotion. Scientists have even studied body language associated with cursing. A majority of the time, curse words are accompanied by a dramatic exhale. Our shoulders rise and fall as we shout the obscenity. Our brain knows this word is aiming to release stress, so our body tries to work with it. This is why swearing is crucial during times of stress, because it can help restrict people from resorting to physical violence. Lastly, cursing is a sign of intelligence. Studies from the past five years show that swearing is a sign of both social and linguistic intelligence. According to psychology professor Timothy Jay, there are countless advantages to swearing. He studied swear words for over 40 years, but his research mainly concludes that those who swear are significantly advanced in their native language and skilled at generating vocabulary. There's an assumption that people who often swear when they speak are less intelligent because they use swear words as filler words for more advanced vocabulary. But Jay's research proves this wrong. People with filthy language consistently find synonyms for their curse words and mold them to best suit their statements. People who swear also tend to have higher social intelligence and creative functioning, as socializing, creativity, and swearing all come from the right side of the brain. Additionally, in studies as recently as 2019, Data claims that those who curse have higher levels of integrity and honesty because swear words are some of the best words to communicate extreme emotion. Since a young age, many of us were taught that swearing is rude, aggressive, or, this one's my favorite, unladylike. But now, with extensive research on foul language, it doesn't feel as taboo. Let's turn to Professor Satpute to dive more into the science behind this type of language. Okay, well, again... Jay, thank you so much for taking the time to kind of come on the show. We're so happy to have you. I think this is our first psychology professor in a very long time, so it's nice mm-hmm. to have someone back. Mm-hmm. Um, before we'd start, I'd like to clarify for myself and other listeners out there who need it, some brain basics, if you will. From what I know, the higher brain functions deal with language while the quote-unquote lower brain functions or kind of the primal brain functions deal with emotions. Is this correct? Well, there's a lot of debate about even that point. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So uh, I think that um, it is pretty clear, of course, that language is something that's very advanced and is something that um, humans have in ways that many other species don't. But of course, there are many species that communicate uh, like uh, in bird song, um, that don't have like birds don't have huge brains. Uh, even so, they are able to communicate in rather uh, complicated ways using bird song. Um, and some of the debate relies around uh, sort of surrounds the idea of whether it's just sort of like cortex that actually mm-hmm. drives the ability to communicate with language, or whether subcortical structures are also involved. Um, and I think that uh, most likely the answer lies in the notion that there's a combination of subcortical structures and also cortical structures that are really important for language. And so the notion that like, well, you know, we evolved these subcortical structures and then later we evolved this cortical sort of mantle around them and that the cortical mantle is where language resides, whereas the subcortical structures are not where language resides. 
it's I think it's more complicated than that at this point. Um, and I think, uh, in a sense, the jury's still out as to whether subcortical structures are actually critical for language in a way um, that we might not have known before. Um, so I, I'm sorry I couldn't give you like a really no. clear, crisp answer to that, but I think uh, I think that there's some there's a lot of like uh, action happening in that field now um, that uh, I think things that we took as true before might be called into question today. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really neat point of how it's kind of more of a gray area now because I remember from what I learned there's you know the right side of the brain and the left side of the brain and those deal with different functions. And from what we know now with more advanced research and neuroimaging, is language more of that right side of the brain with creativity and music and art or kind of the left side that has to do with analysis and numbers? Or is it kind of just we see it all over the place now that it's related to so many different things? Yeah, I think that's a great question, too. I think that like there's there's definitely there's a lot of work in hemispheric um, lateralization uh, that happened. I would say earlier than today, um, and uh, and today there's a lot more work in your imaging suggesting that um, you know when you when you look at people's brains that are working sort of intact rather than looking at people who have um, like split brain patients mm-hmm. where they cut the corpus callosum, um, it looks like whenever people are doing language tasks, there's a lot of bilaterality. Now there is definitely some evidence of left lateralization in people who are right-handed. Um, so there's a handedness issue that comes into play as well. So if you're right-handed, most of your language functions are left lateralized, but if you're left-handed, it's a little bit more distributed. It's not just that it's right lateralized. It's actually just more distributed. Um, but I think it's relatively safe to say that most of what we do when it comes to language, at least the left hemisphere seems to be relatively more important for language than the right hemisphere, at least in right-handed people. Wow, that's interesting. I didn't, it's kind of funny that, you know, the right hand is on the other side. Mm -hmm. I think that each side of the brain would control that one side of the body. Mm -hmm. Um, Sort of transitioning now into pain and language. I know we talked a little bit about this in our email exchange. Mm -hmm. Earlier in the podcast, I discussed how swearing in moments of pain can help trigger an adrenaline rush. And I was wondering, is this related to that fight or flight experience in the amygdala? Is that moment of cursing, you know, after you stub your toe or something, is that what's being activated? Yeah, there's a lot of different hypotheses about why when you have some kind of pain, there might be some benefit to swearing or using some kind of taboo word. Um, One view is that if you can take your pain and translate it into a word, it actually attenuates the pain itself. Um, And so there's actually a lot of work on this view uh, showing that, for example, if you take whatever feelings that you have and you're asked to label them in some way, um, it'll actually reduce activity in the amygdala. um, And it will also, um, well, so it it gets a little complicated because activity in the amygdala does not mean fear and activity in the amygdala does not mean pain. um, And activity in the amygdala can mean a lot of different things. Um, the amygdala is activated when people feel fear, when people feel pain sometimes. Um, but it is also activated when people uh, experience pleasure. Mm-hmm. And so it's not a, it's like hard to interpret the meaning of that, act, the activation of that structure. Um, but there is like one of my uh, favorite studies that I've read on this topic uh, is where they take people who have uh, fear of spiders. Mm-hmm. 
and they ask them to, uh, they bring him into a room where there's actually a spider, and they ask them to uh, say something like, well, I'm really afraid of that big, brown, hairy spider. Mm-hmm. That's like a very, I'm describing my feelings, and I'm in relation to the thing that's there. And they have a, like three different control conditions where they just are asked to utter different things that are different than that. And it turns out that, and then after that, they ask them, take as many steps towards the spider and touch the spider as, as you're feeling comfortable with, right? And it turns out that when you say, I am really afraid of that big, brown, hairy spider, you will actually take more steps toward that, towards that spider than if you just sort of say something incidental. Um, and so I think the, the argument has been that if you actually take your feelings, if your feelings are in some kind of uh, flow state and you're able to mm-hmm. reflect on them, conceptualize them, and bring them, in a sense, out of that flow state uh, as an object of something that you can kind of think about, um, then you're actually more likely to, uh, you're like objectifying your feelings. And in doing so, you're actually not feeling them as potently. Um, and as a consequence, you're able to actually get over them. So that's been one view, but there's also evidence to the contrary, <laughs> Always. <laughs> which makes it very complicated. Um, so some of the work that I've done in my lab shows that if, if the feeling is a little ambiguous, um, and you're not quite sure if you feel like afraid or if you feel mm-hmm. like, you know, neutral towards something, then if you call it, you know, um, like something that you would have, if you're like required to say like, look, I'm going to, I, if I, if you, if you're required to say, I feel fear, then you end up actually pulling that neutral, that sort of uh. ambiguous stimulus into a zone of fear. And if you say like, I actually feel somewhat neutral towards it, then you'll pull it towards more of like a, a neutral state. So there's a, there's a lot of work there about, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, there are many questions about which way it can go. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. I remember when I was younger, I was kind of taught about that language toolbox that you get in preschool mm-hmm. where you have to, you know, pick a word that you're feeling and kind of express that. And I went to the same school K through 12 and a big, big proponent of their teaching was, you know, communication and expressing your feelings through language. And even now I know a lot of therapy tactics, you know, just talking it out does so much. And so that's fascinating to see how that kind of relates to fear and pain and pleasure as well. Mm-hmm. I, I know you talked about fear earlier. I, I read your, an article about your research for News at Northeastern about in the ABS lab about you know, what goes on in our minds when we're scared. And you talked a lot about um, the role that external kind of stimuli plays in triggering that activation mm-hmm. um, in the amygdala. I'm curious, and I know there's not a lot of research being done on swearing and cursing. Curse words sort of, well, not sort of, we kind of have given curse words a negative connotation through society. They're almost social constructs. And so mm-hmm. how do they hold so much weight over us in our brain when we're giving them that, mm-hmm. that sort of power? And unlike fear, when you know a clown is popping out at you and then you get scared, Sometimes an emotion is an internal feeling. Mm-hmm. How do curse words that aren't sort of always brought on by external physical factors hold so much power in our mind when yeah. we've given them 
power this whole time, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, totally. I think, I think those are, these are like, you know, there's actually a big volume of work on taboo words. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I think that there's still a lot to be done because exactly why they work and how they, how they work is, is still a mystery um, in, in some ways. So I think that like, um, so I think that one misconception about um, taboo words is that they're actually used infrequently. Turns out that they're mm-hmm. actually used quite ubiquitously um, and that uh, they're, they're practically used almost as often as pronouns. So on average, now there's a lot of variants and mm-hmm. some people don't use them at all. And some people use them all the time. Uh, but when you look at it on average, people use taboo words about as frequently as they use pronouns, which is kind of like, that's wild. <laughs> wild to think yeah. about. Um, you know, I, I would say anywhere between uh, one in a hundred words, which is frequent um, to like around one in a thousand words, which is still very pretty mm-hmm. frequent. Um, in, in a day are tend to be on average taboo words. That's what the research suggests, at least in our society. Um, I think that like, I think that when it comes to like, why do taboo words have some kind of uh, value? I think it's very much about the context in which they're used. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so it's never, it's not like a uniform effect. It's um, sometimes taboo words are used to make someone laugh and sometimes they're used uh, in, uh, to, to upset somebody. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of variation in their usage. Um, when it comes to pain or fear, um, I think that taboo words, it's, it's like they're a way of expressing an action that's different from, it's like a substitute or an opportunity cost. Mm-hmm. So if you were to um, uh, encounter something that um, upset you, you could react physically uh, and, I don't know, aggressively, arguably, like with a, with a, a physical aggression. Mm-hmm. Or if you substitute that with the word, it actually takes the place of that physical aggression, at least in that moment, for that, that period of time. Um, and insofar as the body is going to, insofar as like the, the autonomic nervous system is going to drive a reaction in the body, an increase in heart rate, an increase in respiration, an increase in like uh, blood flow to the to the to the like limbs, right, um, or to the legs, like the legs or the arms, um, for like an attack or a flee reaction. Uh, well, when you that, that that I think that could happen um, many times, but if you have a word, it diverts that reaction into a different place. Um, mm-hmm. And it allows you to kind of express a social communication of that reaction, but doesn't necessarily require you to take it, right? And so the autonomic nervous system doesn't have to have like a, a big amped up response. You can actually divert, divert it into a different location. Um, and so I think that swear words, in a sense, help us do that. Like they, they, they help us create a substitution of an effect that creates, it's sort of like a functional equivalence without all the autonomic reactions that are required. Mm -hmm. Um, To be sure, like when people use swear words, they do have autonomic activity, but I'm trying to compare it against the idea of punching a wall. Yeah. (laughs) It's like punching a wall versus saying something very neutral versus saying a swear word. A swear word is a nice sort of middle road. Agreed. I think 
uh, I mean, a lot of the research that I came upon was how people are appreciating swear words in the sense that they just help people from resorting to physical violence, as you said. Mm. And it's just so impressive, their versatility, that I really like that idea you articulated as kind of swearing as the middle ground. Mm-hmm. Because we don't have to just, you know, be preschoolers and pull out our toolbox and say, oh, this really hurts. You know, we can let out that emotional release through swearing mm-hmm. without having to, you know, punch the wall. Yeah. Um, which is neat. I'm I'm a huge fan of swearing. Obviously, that's <laughs> why I did this podcast. I've always wanted to kind of break down that whole taboo idea around it. Um, the next question I have is actually about sort of processing taboo words in a sense, which area of the brain is responsible for understanding that a word is taboo versus, oh, this is a neutral word uh, word like table or chair or Uh, door? I wish I could give you a straightforward answer to that question, but I don't think Mm -hmm. we know. Um, And I think it's because words are not processed in a single location in the brain in general. Um, words Words are rich ideas and when you, there, there's some people, there, there's some studies that try to isolate exactly which brain regions process a word, but I think they kind of miss the point, is that a word isn't just about, it, you can't decontextualize it from its context. Um, when, you, when you retrieve a word, it, it creates what's called pattern completion, which means like if I say um, pink elephant, uh, you will have some kind of pattern completion that can mean either very deep or very shallow. A shallow pattern completion means you may not retrieve a vivid representation of a pink elephant, but a deep one means that you're actually imagining a pink elephant and you might imagine its orientation in space. You might imagine its facial expression. You might imagine the sort of backdrop behind it um, and where it is and what it's doing and whether it's happy or sad. I mean, that's a very vivid imaginative representation of just the the two words pink elephant put together so i think taboo words have a similar uh, they work similarly and so when you say some kind of word um like the monkey threw some shit at me right mm-hmm. it'll actually create a very vivid representation or a very sh- uh, shallow one um and so it involves a lot of brain regions when it's deep it in it it'll basically cascade throughout many parts of the brain. And those parts of the brain that are activated are arguably part of the representation of that concept. Um, and so, you know, there, you, you could kind of divorce the sort of phonological sounds of a word mm-hmm. from its meaning, but what we care about is its meaning. And the meaning itself can be represented throughout much of the brain, not just like in one particular location. Um, we do know that many words that have affective connotations will engage brain regions that we know are involved in regulating the body. So if we say something like, even something like cemetery or dead monkey um, or something more um, visceral, like, um, like words like the F word or, mm-hmm. um, uh, or uh, poetry that is very visceral, it will engage brain regions that ultimately affect the body. So even though we might process a lot of the sort of semantic meaning of them in cortical areas, uh, it'll actually engage brain regions that are, that are like the amygdala or even deeper in the brainstem, like the periocular gray or the, the hypothalamus 
that's not in the brainstem, but um, but we know is involved in regulating visceral reactions in the body. Um, and so I think um, uh, it, I don't think that uh, it, it's 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 pretty clear to me that words can have an impact on the body pretty directly. And I don't know if we needed psychology to show that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that like people can feel it yeah. when they hear certain words directed at them. Um, so yeah, that's fascinating. Wow. Um, definitely. I think the whole idea of that visceral experience, cause I know everyone can relate to saying a curse word or being mm-hmm. cursed at is really, is either really fun or just a horrible experience. You know, you yeah. get the chills, you feel sick. Um, or it can kind of be that nice exhale that you've needed to do all day long. That's all I have for you today. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to the future of research. And curse words and taboo words. I've seen a lot more of it recently this past year, and I'm excited to see where it goes. I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. We're super happy to have you. Thank you so much. And if we do something like this again, I hope to have you back. Um, Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, I would love to be back. Thank you very much for the opportunity. This episode of WRBB's Brainwaves was hosted by Dana Decay. This recording wouldn't be possible without the help of Susanna Mays, our podcast director, and Sean Kolchinski, WRBB's general manager. This episode of Brainwaves was mixed and edited by our audio engineer, Joseph Mossbridge. Special thanks to the WRBB leadership staff, Northeastern University, and Northeastern Student Activity Fee for funding this podcast. Our theme music is W by Mari Getty. Head to wrbbradio.org where you can find the latest episodes of all of our podcasts, listen to our internet live stream, and read up on the latest music reviews. And make sure to follow us on all social media at WRBB Radio. Thanks for tuning in.